Church of Christ presents Under Hope's Roof, the sermon by the Reverend Jean Randall Bodman, presented on Sunday, November 17th, 2019. Beloved Spirit, fall on us gathered here to meet you. Shape the words of my mouth and the thoughts and wonderings of all of our hearts. Make them a doorway to you, for you are surely our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've noticed it, but out there in the world, things are changing. For me, the first sighting was at Fred Meyer. It started on November 1 in the seasonal section, and then it spread across the store in Christmas decorations. By Friday of this week, when I went shopping for a candle and some decorations for my Thanksgiving table, gone. It was too late. Everything is Christmas. They've even started to play the music. I popped into Starbucks on my way home and came out with a red and green cup covered with the words, Merry Coffee. <laughs> Meanwhile, back here at church, we are not rushing ahead into the Christmas season. We're stopping. We're pausing here in the very last week of what the church calls ordinary time, that long stretch of time from Pentecost when we celebrate the coming of the Spirit and Advent, that long stretch of time with no major festivals of the church. And every year, as commercials on radio and TV and podcasts begin to market their items as the perfect Christmas gift, get it now. Good for last-minute shopping. The lectionary holds back. The lectionary, that set of readings designed to carry us through the arc of the church year, takes us instead to the edge of apocalypse and into a vision of the realm of God. And we pause here. In this pause, in this week's lectionary, we're offered two starkly different visions words of threat and warning, words of promise and comfort. On the one hand, Jesus in Jerusalem, at the end of his life, this story is happening after the triumphal entry, after Jesus has been teaching in the temple, and just before the events of Holy Week. In that space, Jesus warns his disciples, who are standing there awed by the beauty and majesty of the temple. And he warns them and says, soon, not one stone of that magnificent building will stand on another. It will all be gone. Soon, in fact, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes, famines, and plagues, dreadful portents and great signs in the skies. The future looks terrifying. And on the other hand, we have our text from Isaiah, which offers us a vision and a future for the people. The people who have returned at long last from their, from their exile, filled with longing and a desire to be back in the land, they get there and things are not as they had hoped. Their home, 
but life has not been magically restored. There's famine in the land and conflict and so much work to do. Fields must be replanted, houses and streets rebuilt, and of course, the temple has to be redone. So much work. So God sends the people a vision, a vision of restoration, and more than restoration, a vision of complete fulfillment, a vision of the peaceable kingdom when all distress will be over, when whatever it is that went wrong between human and human, what went wrong between humanity and God back there in the Garden of Eden, all of that will be reversed when all shall live in abundance and peace, and no harm shall happen in all God's holy mountain. What do these two texts, so far removed from each other in time, so far removed from us, from the pulse of our cultural time urging us forward, that urge and pulse into the light and energy of the holidays, that urge and pulse of negative news, what do they have to say to us about this time, our time right now? What can they tell us about the chronos of our time and also the kairos moments of our time? Now, you may remember that about half of the narrative of the Gospel of Luke takes place as Jesus and his followers are on their way to Jerusalem. All of the teaching stories happen on the way. Now they have arrived at long last, and Jesus has been teaching in the temple, confronting people, and spending time in that magnificent, solemn, and joyful place. His followers are a little bit confused about who exactly he is and what he is going to do now that they have finally arrived in the holy city. Instead of the vision of victory that they may well have been expecting, Jesus offers them a vision of suffering and destruction made survivable only by the enduring presence of the Spirit. Famine, earthquakes, distress, more of the suffering that human life has always entailed. And also, and on top of that, persecution for being his followers but, Jesus says, this will give you an opportunity to testify. Your job is not to get stressed out or to be overwhelmed by all that has gone wrong, by everything that's going on around you. Your job is to bear witness to the light, to bear witness even in the midst of all of that adversity. The primary tasks, he said, one of the primary tasks, he says, of Jesus' followers' life is to be open to and to experience the nearness of God in the midst of uncertain and scary times and to tell about it. They and we are not just to hoard it to ourselves, but to bear witness to the light that we see, to participate in the light to such a degree that we reflect it into the world. For Jesus' first hearers, this prediction about the temple would have been a shock and a horror. The temple was the appointed place of God's presence with the people. 
For Luke's first readers, this was no longer a prediction, but a retrospection. Luke was written probably 60 years after the events that it describes. So Luke's readers had already endured what was once a prediction. Jerusalem and its temple had been conquered and destroyed. How does that speak to them? What does it encourage them to do in that moment in time? To witness to the light. How does that speak to us today? We who don't know anything about a temple, we've never been to it, we've never been wrapped up in and awed by its glory, we've never been made humble by its magnificence, never been moved by its promise, never been frightened for its future or dismayed by its loss. It's simply a relic of history for our practice. But this text might lead us to ask, what other things will be thrown down in our day? Are there religious idols that we have created, that we have raised in our own lives, to which Jesus might respond, that's not really what my movement is all about? What do these disparate texts have to say to us? Odd as it sounds, I think that both of these visions offer us something to hold onto as we make our way through our own lives in this current age of wars and rumors of wars, of hunger for many and obscene wealth for a few, our times of cruelty, allies abandoned, and children taken from their parents for the crime of seeking a safer life. These texts call us into testimony. And testimony is more than just saying, I like that one vision more than that other vision. Testimony includes having the vision that faith provides to actually see that the hoped for thing, the vision of bounty and peace and justice is still true despite the present scene. To see it and to live in accordance with it hold on to that vision of joy and peace and plenty and to dwell there under its roof in hope. We are, of course, called to witness to the injustice in the world, to see the world as it is and to speak up, to speak up about all of the ways that it is broken, to see racism and misogyny and homophobia, to name mass incarceration and income inequality, and the greedy, wanton disruption of the world's climate. And this week in particular, we are keeping our eyes open and seeing clearly the madness of gun violence in our country. We are seeing the broken world, seeing the broken world is part of our job as disciples, because we are seeing the world that Jesus loved. But we are called upon to testify that another world is possible. Another world is on its way. Another world is also here already at the very same time as the broken world. It's easier and more enticing and more culturally acceptable 
to dwell in cynicism, to be indignant and morally outraged about all that is wrong. But we are called to bear witness to the vision that gives us hope, the promised reign of God when we shall be glad and rejoice in what God is creating, when weeping and distress will be over and the wolf and the lamb will feed together, a time when no one shall hurt or harm on all God's holy mountain. We are called to bear witness to our experience of God's nearness to us, God's carrying us in the midst of our dismay. It's a hard thing to do to speak light and to speak love into the world when the world is speaking anger and hatred and moral indignation at every turn. But it is our, our joy and our job as the church not just to see the brokenness, but to see and to be light in the world. Living right under the roof of hope, we are called, in fact, to see that light in the world and in each other, and to tell each other when we see it. It makes us shy, but I think it is the thing we are called to do. We are called to bear witness to every act of goodness, every bold decision for compassion and kindness. We're called to bear witness to the houseless sleeping in our streets and to every effort to feed and house those folks. We're called to testify to the resilience of the men at Hoyt Street regaining their lives and to bear witness to the strength of the women at Swan and Madrona House, strengthening their sobriety and building a new life for their children. Cynicism is easy. Hope is sustaining. And sometimes we can't see it in the world. We don't even see glimmers. All we see is the negative. We can't see it in ourselves. We feel overburdened and like one small voice against a big dark cloud. And that's why we have each other, to bear one another up, to reflect light back to each other, I saw a perfect meme on Facebook this week, and as hard as I searched, I could only find it once and never get back to it. But it's a cartoon image of stick figures walking together, arms slung around each other, four or five across, and they're walking along, and suddenly one in the middle comes up to a hole in the pavement and lifts up its feet and is carried across by the others walking along beside it. And they keep going, and another comes up to a hole, and is held and walked across it by those walking beside him. We belong to each other, and we need each other to see the light so that we together can be the light. I'll close with a blessing from Maya Angelou. My wish for you, she writes, is that you continue. Continue to be who and how you are, to astonish a mean world with your acts of kindness. Continue to allow humor to lighten the burden of your tender heart. Continue in a society dark with cruelty to let the people hear the grandeur of God in the peals of your laughter. Continue to let your eloquence elevate the people to heights they had only imagined. Continue to remind the people that each is as good as the other and that no one is beneath nor above you. 
Continue to remember your own young years and look with favor upon the lost and the least and the lonely. Continue to put the mantle of your protection around the bodies of the young and the defenseless. Continue to take the hand of the despised and diseased and walk proudly with them in the high street. Some might see you and be encouraged to do likewise. Continue to plant a public kiss of concern on the cheek of the sick and the aged and infirm and count that as a natural action to be expected. Continue to let gratitude be the pillow upon which you kneel to say your nightly prayer, and let faith be the bridge you build to overcome evil and to welcome good. Continue to ignore no vision which comes to enlarge your range and increase your spirit. Continue to dare to love deeply and risk everything for the good thing. Continue to float happily in the sea of infinite substance which set aside riches for you before you had name. Continue, and by doing so, you and your work will be able to continue eternally. Amen. Listen, listen, listen.